Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast for Tuesday, the 30th of June. We're finally through June. July begins tomorrow. Well, I talked about Canada Day and what it means a little bit to be Canadian and why we've got you know, it's pretty good here. I know what the last four months have been like, but I want to address some of the pros and cons of what we've seen in terms of how we've related alone, because we've been alone a lot, and how we can relate to each other going into the future. It's not a sermon, so I would listen. Fred Eisenberger, mayor of the city of Hamilton, got good health news. He's feeling much, much better than he was last Thursday and with a negative COVID-19 test as well. So we'll talk about that aspect of the past few days with him and where we're going with prevention of having COVID-19 spread, including masks in the city of Hamilton. We will go there. Dr. Isaac Bogach, one of the lead voices in terms of medicine and in terms of epidemiology from the University of Toronto, will join us. He knows infectious diseases like no one else. We'll talk about where Canada is at and where we're all at going forward. And... Disturbing news again about the Roslyn Retirement Residence. We'll cover that with Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer for the Canadian Association of Retired People. It's the Bill Kelly Podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We have had quite a 2020 so far as Canadians. You know, sometimes you have a birthday and you take stock of where you're at in your life, especially those milestone birthdays. Like I'm years away from turning 50. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, practically a half decade, but I think I'll, I I know I did when I was 40 and I found myself happier at 40 than I was at 30. Sometimes I'll see someone famous on TV and they'll be, and I'll think what amazing life they probably have. They don't have to worry about money. They do this, they do that. They could be an actor, an ex-athlete, a musician, even a politician. Yeah, even a politician, but they're like 68. And I don't want to give years away. And we've thought a lot probably about our own mortality. And so, no, I wouldn't rather be Tom Hanks and have Tom Hanks be uh, Gregory F. Brady. I don't want that, you know, I don't want to I don't want to run the clock ahead that much. But we've had to do an awful lot of thinking about who we are, what we do. And I think we'll think about it tomorrow, what being a Canadian is about because we've had a very unique time as Canadians, and everybody in every nation can say that. But tomorrow's our damn birthday, and we're allowed to be a bit reflective and give ourselves a little toast as well. And I think we'd start with the contrast, and I began the show with this yesterday, just absorbed by the coverage of what's happening in the U.S. You know, maybe if you turn on CNN, you'll notice something different. I'll give you a, a 20 seconds to think about it, but something they're doing on their screen that they stopped doing for the last three weeks, and and for a very important reason. They were covering the Black Lives Matter movement, covering anti-black racism, and how we have to stamp it out and do a much better job with it. Do you know what it is? They put the coronavirus pandemic chart back up on the right corner of the screen. You'll get the total cases globally, the total deaths globally, 509,516, and spiraling up and in the united states they are likely to pass 131,000 deaths today and it got me thinking about who we are versus what they are and i do think sometimes i really hesitate makes me cringe a little bit the kids call it cringy they don't say cringe worthy they don't have time but i hesitate sometimes when we pat ourselves on the back as canadians but i'm going to tell you yeah we're a little bit self-congratulatory sometimes But we've got a right to be proud, not just because we're not America right now, but because we're Canada. 
And those two things are independent of each other. It's a mess in the States. And if you're like me, you romanticized the States growing up. You did. We get a lot of our television from there, sports from there, music from there. And traveling there, I've loved every second of it. I couldn't tell you how many states I've been in, how many airports, how many major cities, but I've been incredibly lucky to travel a lot to the U.S. for work and see cities I never thought I'd think i see as a little kid. Spending time in San Diego, multiple trips to Miami. Um, you know, that, that was just, that was, that was never going to happen when you're sitting there and you're a Miami Dolphins fan and you're five years old. But I think with what we're seeing, we have nothing but empathy for them. And we're allowed to have a little bit of anger for them as well. We took calls yesterday about people that are kind of ticked that they've screwed this up so badly and they're continuing in some ways to do so. They are broken in the U.S. And right now we are not. They appear to be a failed state. We are certainly not that. And they politically have turned to tribalism. It's like rooting for sports teams where you're loyal to the end and you don't evolve and you don't switch back and forth. And they're at each other's throats. And I don't think Canadians ever will be. Oh, we'll have our disagreements. We'll have vehement disagreements. And we did going into last year's election cycle. And there was some bitterness from some about the results. And there are some that will still be bitter about the results. And there are some that would be bitter had Andrew Scheer become the prime minister with a minority government instead of the incumbent Justin Trudeau. I got all that. But I'll tell you a couple quick things about Canada before we have the mayor of Hamilton on. We figured a lot of things out. And we haven't figured it all out. Not a chance. But generally speaking, we're happy. I'm going to give you a couple of numbers that, of course, are pre-pandemic from the Globe and Mail from a survey in spring of 2019. So about a year and a little bit ago. We're happy. 78% of people 65 and up in our country are happy. 75% of people age 55 and older are happy. 62% of those 18 to 34 in Canada are happy. But I'd attribute that to, you know, being very awake to some of our issues and also the stress. You remember being 18 to 34. I'll have kids that'll be 18 to 34. Yeah, in about a half decade to a decade. And you'll go through those peaks and valleys, ups and downs, financially, emotionally, don't have the right job, don't live with the right roommate, don't have the right college professor, whatever it is, but we'll get past it, okay? And we have found out these last few months, we are far from a perfect country. We've got some reckoning to do based on the last three months or so. How could anyone argue that? we got to do way better for our older people, our elders. There's a way to do that. And it still may not be ideal or even close to perfect. And we should also understand that they would lay their lives on the line for us. But in this pandemic, they shouldn't have to. Okay? You'd give your li- if you have a kid, you'd give your life for your kid. You would never ask your kid to do the opposite. We got to provide equal opportunities for people to grow up in safe homes, to go to school and all the different levels of school as well. Going safely to elementary school, high school. And if you want to go into postgraduate, post high school work, whether it's college, whether it's a shorter program, whether it's go get a master's degree or a doctorate, we've got to provide you that that opportunity. You need to be smart. You need to get the good grades. And yes, you do need some money to do that. Here's what we can't provide in Canada, and no country can, equality. We can't provide equality, but we can provide equal opportunity. That's very different 
Equal opportunity is something all of us should have as Canadians. We can't get to equality, but we can try and come close. But I think I'm telling you something you realize. We've got it pretty good. Even the last three months, it's been hell on earth at times for all of us to get through emotionally. But we're getting there. And that's a statement of fact, not the self-satisfied reassurance I was talking about earlier. And I think we do this as people. We marvel at how we evolve, how far we come. And we can still want to get a hell of a lot better. And we should. But tomorrow, because we won't be on live tomorrow, toast yourself. Give yourself credit. You're here now. And we'll gather again. We'll travel again. We'll sing at concerts again. Maybe badly. We'll yell at the referee at sporting events again. Actually, you shouldn't do that. Just cheer. Don't boo. But that time's not tomorrow or the next day. But understand that it's coming for us as Canadians. And we have bonded together. We've got our differences and tremendous issues that we need to take care of. Not in a year, not in two, but within the next few weeks and months. But we'll get together again, and it'll be worth the wait, as so many things in life are. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very pleased to welcome in our next guest who got some very good news yesterday. As a matter of fact, he's the longtime mayor of the city of Hamilton. He is Fred Eisenberger. Fred, it's Greg Brady. Thank you very much for making the time to come on and happy Canada Day tomorrow. Uh, thanks, Greg. Uh, you know, it's uh, going to be a great Canada Day, I hope, for everybody. And uh, certainly for me, it's uh, nice to get some positive, negative test results. So, uh, you know, it's a relief for uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, for me and for a lot of people around me, quite frankly. Everyone's been on pins and needles. Mm-hmm. But uh, the message has been, for me, uh, for the longest time, uh, Greg, is, uh, you know, if you're feeling sick, stay home. And if you uh, think you have symptoms, get tested. So uh, that certainly happened to me on Thursday. So I was uh, happy to follow through, and I'm glad it turned out uh, to be a negative test. And uh, we can get back on to, you know, the, the things that we uh, need to do, which is uh, working on, things of important the city oh yeah and we'll, and we'll get to some of those those issues yeah. i'm sure our listeners would be uh th- you know they're, they're thankful for your news how are you on this tuesday compared to last thursday how are you feeling much 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 better thank mm-hmm. you uh, you know what uh, obviously it was a short-term thing you know there's been summer colds or you know that kind of thing i mean i had some nausea and uh, you know big wicked headache and some congestion but Obviously, that was, uh, you know, something else. And so uh, feeling much better and, uh, you know, good to go, quite frankly. Good. And, it, and really, really, uh, you know, pleased with and thankful for all of the lovely messages people sent along uh, expressing their concerns. So thank you all very much for, for, uh, for that. And um, you know what? Uh, thankfully, it, uh, it, it worked out uh, the, the right way. And, hope, and that's not always the case for a lot of people. So, you know, I can really get, come to understand uh, how impactful this is. Whether you're negative or positive, just getting a test is uh, has has a lot of impact, a lot of spillover effect. Well, it's it's a tricky one too, isn't it? Because this is, you know, Fred, this is the same virus. It's the same virus that was there in March. It's the same virus in April. It's a beast. It hasn't gone away. It hasn't lessened in, uh, you know, in in the ability to catch it. Yes, we're doing some things differently, and and I think people should feel good about that and confident and emboldened by that. But you still have to. <laughs> You still can't change all your habits, and we can't revert back to how we were a year ago or six months ago. We got to keep our eye on the ball here. Yeah, very much. And uh, you know, uh, you know, being cautious uh, when you think you might have symptoms, uh, you know, don't don't uh, you know, just kind of carry on because you might be spreading that virus. And as we well know, you you could have that virus and not even know about it. And so uh, you know, don't uh, don't be shy about getting tested. Uh, you know, even though it uh, it does have some impact in, in you know for a short period of time, and 
for me, the test results, uh, you know, I, I got the test Friday morning and, you know, Monday afternoon, I got the results. So it's pretty quick, uh, which is great, uh, as it should be, and, you know, one way or the other, so that, uh, you know, you can either get on with your life or, or, you know, make the changes that you need to have and then do the contact tracing that needs to happen thereafter. So this is, you're, you're 100% right, this virus is still very much with us. We don't want to lose all that great ground we've achieved by virtually shutting our entire city down. Uh, the right thing to do at the time, but now it's time to kind of gradually open up, and uh, and you know people need to s- keep taking the precautions that public health is uh, is talking about. You know that six meter or two meter separation, uh, coughing into your elbow, washing your hands as, as often as possible, and you know wearing masks uh, is highly recommended, and uh, you know may at some point become mandatory. Uh, I'm going to get to the mass in a second. Tell us a little bit about how how confident you've been and and how the people of Hamilton have basically uh, earned that confidence. Um, you know, there were 11 cases over the weekend, but there haven't been any big outbreaks. There haven't been any scenarios like the, the nail salon in Kingston. Basically, uh, Mayor, there haven't been any backward steps uh, for the city of Hamilton for weeks. And uh, though we're all being careful, and and you know, some of us are being more careful than others. I think the numbers have really you know really bode well for what the city residents have done here it, it is a testament to you know the uh, the, the good work of uh, the citizens of Hamilton you know we we can only uh, you know provide advice and uh, make recommendations and some of them with uh, with penalties and stipulations attached to them but we need people in the community to adhere to them if we're going to be successful and and you know by and large people have done exactly what they've been asked to do they've been cautious and careful uh, you know they've uh, they've respected their families and, you know, separated themselves for the longest time, uh, you know, up through two difficult circumstances. Uh, so people have made some very difficult choices, and uh, it, it has brought us to, you know, the place that we're in right now, which is a very level, you know, caseload, uh, you know, not, no, no dramatic spikes happening. And uh, as long as we can continue to do that, uh, we'll be in good shape. And, you know, the gradual opening of the economy, needs to be done carefully. And so why is it being done in two-week increments? So that uh, mm. some testing and some data can be looked at to see if, uh, if it's having any kind of dramatic increase in its spike. So one of the, one of the spikes that we did see uh, was the, uh, the increase in cases for, you know, people, uh, you know, young adults uh, between the ages of 19 and 30. Uh, obviously, you know, at a time in your life when you want to socialize, uh, probably more than other times. And, uh, you know, there's graduations going on and there's all kinds of reasons why people want to get together. And, you know, for whatever reason, uh, you know, sometimes the, the younger crowd thinks they're uh, immortal and immune and, and, uh, you know, just doesn't think it through in terms of uh, the impact. And so we see that in the data. And so mm-hmm. I want to encourage people that uh, as difficult as it is, and as much as you want to get together, Beyond, uh, you know, your your group of 10, uh, you know, don't do it. Uh, be cautious. Maintain that physical separation. Wash your hands. Just follow the recommendations, and uh, we should be good going forward. And, and as we mm-hmm. as we go forward, uh, things will continue to improve. It's Mayor of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberg, our guest on 900 CHML. I want to play uh, a clip for you, but I want to play it for the audience as well. Dr. David Fisman was talking about masks, and we'll go there next. But uh, the doctor was on the show yesterday. I, I want the audience to be able to listen to this and you, and you as well, uh, Mayor Eisenberg. Here's David okay. Fisman. If you look at masks and COVID, one of the tricks COVID plays is this pre-symptomatic infecting that seems to go on. It's been estimated by a group from Hong Kong that about 40% of all the transmissions happen before people feel sick. So the idea is my mask protects you from me, your mask protects me from you. 
because we're all going to do the right thing, I hope, once we feel sick and get out of circulation. But the sneaky trick of the COVID virus is that people spread it before they feel sick. And masks are a fix for that. They keep us from infecting each other before we know we feel sick. All right, Mayor Eisenberg, you talked about uh, being asymptomatic, not knowing you have it, uh, and being in circumstances. Could be a retail environment inside, could be, you know, the malls are reopened, it could be walking in there. Uh, if you're a, you know, if you're an employee in the in the retail industry, the grocery industry, obviously th- this these kind of things have been on your mind, and I, and I think we owe it to those people to give them the same kind of you know security that that we have when we're in our own homes. Yeah, I I, I fully agree with that, and I think many uh, many stores and locations have adopted that attitude that uh, you don't you don't get to go in unless you have a mask on. It doesn't have to be uh, you know an N95; it could be a surgical mask or uh, you know it's just a covering on your mouth. Uh, that's the right thing to do. And I think, uh, you know, I think we're having the discussion right now, I, to be honest, that in terms of whether we as a city need to take that step, uh, knowing that the province uh, isn't prepared to do that, which I think is unfortunate because it, it, it makes for a ba- basically a mosaic of different policies, you know, across mm-hmm. the province. You know, they've been prepared to put all kinds of stipulations and regulations in place. Why they won't do it on the masking side is is a little beyond me, but Notwithstanding, I think we're going to have to make a local decision as well. It, it is still highly recommended that in places where, uh, you know, you're going to be in, in you know, uh, more crowded environments, transit and other places, transit is mandatory, uh, mandatory to the degree that if you have health issues, uh, you know, COPD or breathing issues, that could be very problematic for anyone. So you're not required if you have that. And then the, and then the issue becomes, you know, how do you police it? And so do you, do you really have to, you know, go everywhere all the time, you know, watching to see if people are wearing a mask or not, or is it going to be a self-policing thing, or how is that going to be managed going forward? So yeah. I think masking is, uh, we've come a long way, actually, if you recall, early on, uh, you know, it was uh, not at all recommended that people wear masks because it was thought that you would, you know, get, touch your face too often, uh, you know, have contact with surfaces, and it wasn't really clear about whether surface contacts were was all that uh, important, and uh, and we were trying to you know ensure that all the masking, the the appropriate masking, was going to the frontline healthcare workers. Yes. And now we've come full circle, and and they're looking at uh, you know making it mandatory for everyone to wear a mask in uh, in indoor spaces. So, I think uh, it's the right thing to do. Uh, it, it, as the doctor said, you you can be you can have this virus and spread it mm-hmm. without even knowing it. And uh, if you have a mask on, the uh, the opportunity to do that is minimized significantly. And so uh, that little inconvenience can uh, protect a lot of people. And why wouldn't we want that protection going forward? Is that at the top of your to do list? Would you Toronto Mayor John Tory did this today? Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown is this is this at the very top of of the list? Do you have a timeline for for wanting to enact legislation or at least propose it? Uh, having having a conversation with uh, with our public health and Paul Johnson in our emergency operations center. As we speak, and uh, we'll see where it goes. And ultimately, all of these things will have to go to council because mm-hmm. the debate has been: who makes the decision? Uh, is it is it council, or you know? So far, we've been making uh, following all the directions of our public health, and uh, now it seems to be transforming into council starting to weigh in on some of these public health issues. So. Uh, we want to clear that up, but uh, yeah, it's the top of the list of issues for me to deal with today. Mayor Eisenberger, I can't thank you enough for the time. I'm glad you are well. I think the messaging is strong uh, from you, and uh, and yeah, pushing this forward. Um, again, even it's disappointing that, uh, that the province won't 
uh, enacted for for all. But uh, but I think municipalities are taking charge, and and it's good to see you're going to do that uh, as well. Thank you very much, and have a great candidate tomorrow. Yeah, thanks, Greg, and uh, happy candidate candidate day to everybody out there. There he is, the mayor, uh, Fred Eisenberger of the city of Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The messaging you just heard from uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is masks. Got to get that going. Got to have city council vote on it. It was a big day today. Toronto Mayor John Tory finally said, let's do it. Now he can say while we are waiting for the province, but there was a lot of hemming and hawing in some municipalities. I want to bring on uh, Dr. Isaac Bogic who has been just fantastic, uh, done a lot of media appearances, but the messaging has been strong. He's been an important follow on Twitter as well for data, not just for Canadians, uh, but uh, but watching what's transpiring around the world from the uh, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. Dr. Bogach, I appreciate the time. I know how busy you are, and, and thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me on. Well, radio is more fun than TV anyway, right? You don't have to worry about the background. And uh, Oh, my God. I just came back from a jog. I'm sweaty <laughs> as hell. Like, this is the best. This is fantastic. It's my first day working from home in about, I don't know, I don't want to say how long. It's embarrassing. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's great. I, uh, so, yeah, I, I'm disgusting. But here we go. We can actually have an informed conversation. I don't oh, know we'll go. I haven't had a haircut in six months. Are you doing your own? Is that? No. You know, Why not? I'm one of the fools that thought naively, hey, we're in uh, stage one. I think I'll go call and see if I can get a haircut. And, of course, uh, I'm last on the list. But uh, it took about two weeks. I think I'm booked tomorrow or the next day. I actually booked a whole day off because, like, it was in the middle of the day. So <laughs> I'm just going to get my haircut. Tomorrow. Well, I think, that, you know, let's face it. Um, and, and I can t- I can uh, vouch for this. Marital relations and, and parent-kid relations have been somewhat tested these last four months. So the last thing I want to do is put my wife on the spot and have her, you know, get the scissors and the clippers out. I'll do it. I'll do it myself, and then I'll live with my mistakes, as I usually do. Fair enough. Fair enough. I uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just don't trust my own steady hand at doing this. I'm sure my wife would do a great job. And I, in all fairness, I, a lot of these are like Skype or FaceTime. So I just glue my hair to my head. And, you know, in the hospital, it doesn't matter. I'm wearing a mask. No one can tell who I am anyways because we're seeing yeah. patients and stuff. So and, and, and we're all everyone is in the same boat, right? Everyone's got big poofy hair or funny hair. So it's kind of fun at the end of the day. I'm, totally. I rediscovered the mullet. Oh yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's happening. You're just you're missing a hockey helmet and a couple missing teeth, uh, and then you're exactly. you're ready to fly. Um, the messaging on uh, I mentioned it earlier. The messaging for uh, the province. Um, you know, as many good things as I think we've praised them, we've praised uh, Doug Ford's uh, humanity, and 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 we've related to his uh, you know anxiety about the farm workers, his anxiety about a lot of things. I, I'm I'm disappointed uh, by the province. I won't lie that they they feel this is more a message of enforcement as to why they can't do this. If the messaging is on is on brand, if it's important, look at all the southern states, places you never thought you'd see the concept of mandatory masks, and not just for indoor spaces. And some will say, Doctor Bogich, well, they have to now look at their numbers. Yeah, I get that, but you know, do we want to just beat this thing or do we want to crush it? I'm I'm a little disappointed by the province. Are you? Uh, no, I, I don't, I'm not here to be a contrarian. I, I think that, uh, I'm not, I'm not disappointed. I, Ontario is a huge place. Like this is a massive province. And just like we were able to reopen in a regional manner, mm-hmm. I think that they can make policy related to this in a regional manner. I think it would be very hard to mandate something like this in a part of the province or even in a part of the country that has zero cases. And there's a lot of these places that have zero to few cases. And some could argue, well, if you mandate this now, you can protect them from having 
cases. Eh, yeah, that's that's not. I don't disagree with that. But there's other approaches that you could take. Uh, and, and personally, I, I would have, you know, listen, whatever they say, whatever the law is, whatever the rule is, I completely respect it and I will adhere to it. And 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 that's that. Um, and but but on the other hand, I mean, it's like there's other approaches. And, you know, one other approach would be to do what Alberta is doing and basically right. print off masks by the ten, like truly the tens of millions. Are they at 14 million? I think they're aiming for 20 million and at least start by handing them out. And they're giving them out like Halloween candy at Tim Hortons drive throughs McDonald's drive throughs A&W drive throughs homeless shelters, First Nations uh, areas where there's First Nations, like any marginalized community, they're just giving them out. And like step one, normalize it and hand them out. And, and give people the opportunity for success. And then, you know, if this is not working, you got a bit of a gift of time. It's, it's, it's not even July. This infection is under pretty good control in the vast majority of the country. And if and when the time comes where you say, you know what, we're going to mandate this, you've already desensitized the population to wearing masks. You've already handed them out millions and millions of masks. You've already normalized it. You've bought public trust in public health. And you're not springing this on anyone. So personally, I mean, that's my reason in logic. Yeah. And I appreciate there's a lot of right ways forward. There's a lot of right paths forward. And, and quite frankly, I think the key message is whatever they say, I completely respect and will adhere to. They say mandatory masking. We got mandatory masking. And just quite frankly, at the end of the day, like, for God's sake, put on a mask before you go into a, you know, a building. Put on a mask before you go inside somewhere. It's, it's as simple as that. And I think most, I can't say everybody, but... Uh, certainly a lot of people have been doing this already and, and kudos to them well we have and 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 w- though we felt weird the first time we did it um going into a grocery store now i think the people that are weird are the people that aren't doing it um they're the ones that look look weird to me not the rest of us who have them on so yeah municipalities then it's it, like it, the, the onus is more on them and and you can imagine in the gta you can imagine in downtown toronto i, I you know the city of toronto's got a lot of employees who, you know, I think you could be on street corners handing masks out to people as they go into the subway. I agree. I don't want oh, people yeah. gi- I don't want people giving out $700 tickets uh, no. to people that don't have them. I don't want that. But but the messaging, yeah. again, I don't think enforcement, like so many other things, people use the speeding example. There's lots of things, jaywalking, that aren't enforced, but you know not to do it. Fair enough. I mean, the enforcement piece is, is crucial, um, but, and, and, it, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Like, are you going to penalize humans or, and, and people not wearing masks? Hopefully not. That was a disaster in Toronto when mm-hmm. you get people getting $880 tickets for walking in a park. Yeah. That, that really built a lot of public <laughs> trust. Uh, then there's the, you know, do you penalize businesses that like, what do you expect them to be a, a, a bouncer? I mean, like what, what I, I, I hope, I really hope that this doesn't fall on, you know, some poor, you know, husband and wife running a small business and some schmuck wants to come in without wearing a mask. And, you know, what are they, they're not, they're not bouncers. They're small business owners. Like give them a break. You know, it's not their fault. They can do whatever they can. They put a box of masks by the front door. They can strongly encourage people from wearing it. But like, I really hope there's no fine, yeah. For businesses as well, because look, everybody's suffering. Everybody's felt some tremendous economic consequences from this. So, you know, and, and I was listening to the, the presser earlier. I mean, they said it's not going to be in 
enforced per se. But and and if I mean, I think if they do, of course, not enforce it. I think that's obviously the right approach. And if you do enforce it, I think you got to really wonder how you enforce it, and you got to make sure that there's no equity issues as well. You can't exclude people from no. it working and interacting with the world around them. I think this again. This just goes back to my first point of. You know, there's a lull of this in Canada. We know we're probably going to get smacked in a second wave at some point in the fall. Um, like, give them out like Halloween candy now. Normalize them. Make it easy. Make it e- free. Um, and then, you know, when the time comes, and, you know, obviously that's arbitrary when the time comes, but when the time comes where they want to mandate them, at least we've got mm-hmm. a lot of public trust and highway miles under our belt. Uh, as as a community and as a population, highway, the highway miles are like, oh, okay, no big deal. Okay, it's mandated now. When in fact, probably most people will be wearing them anyways at that point. That's it. That's it. Yeah, Dr. Isaac Bogut, our guest, by the way, on uh, the Bill Kelly Show, Greg Brady, and for Bill Kelly today. All right, we'll move from masks. Um, do you waver back and forth on the potential for a vaccine? I've heard so many people say there's so many people working on it. There's so many billions of dollars getting put into this. So it's not quite like uh, other things that we have searched for vaccines and never found right. them. Do you have a level of confidence or or does it shift based on the, the headlines of the day? Okay, so so two answers. One, yeah, of course, day by day. I'm following this so closely and, you know, some days are good days and some days are bad days. But here's, let's, okay, without giving everyone false senses of hope, here's a scenario. Hear me out. Imagine, okay, we've got this Oxford vaccine trial that's ongoing now. Um, this is what's called a phase three clinical trial. Basically, this is the form of the trial. You're at this stage where the results of this will determine, you know, is this a go or not? Does this vaccine actually work when it's tested on thousands and thousands and thousands of people? That's what this study is going to determine. And we know there's like 140-ish vaccines under development, but this is the one that's at the highest stage of development. So hear me out. We'll probably have the results of this in July, maybe early August. Imagine if this works. And it's not outlandish that that this could work. Okay, so let's say it works. Let's say you start mass producing it August, September, October, and needles start going in arms November, December. Yeah, a lot of ifs have to happen. You know, if it works, if it's able, they're able to scale it, able, they're able to mass produce it, able to distribute it, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of ifs. But, like, it wouldn't be outlandish to think that you could start to have vaccine programs in late 2020. Uh, it might not. It might be a colossal disaster uh, and, and fail, and we have to wait for the other ones. But it certainly could. Like, it's not an impossible scenario. So I'm obviously hopeful, but I'm trying not to let my hope blind my you know vision and clarity by and 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 try to be a skeptic with this but it's certainly not an impossible situation and it's it's uh it's you know the country that creates it it's weird right because is it is it then for sale or is it for free like it's very very difficult to picture that you know it's just going to be available for everybody and again we've got a better scenario here with our health care but at the same time it's it's asking an awful lot and if a, if a european country creates it let's say i understand the concept we're going to take care of ours first it was brought here we're going to we're going to give it to everybody uh, every one of our residents then distribute it elsewhere that's the tricky part is getting it to everybody yeah but you know what's really interesting is in simultaneous with vaccine development there are, and for the last couple of months, countries have been scaling up, and companies and, and, um, and countries have been scaling up their capacity to mass produce a vaccine that doesn't exist. 
actually administer a vaccine that doesn't exist. So, for example, Canada purchased 37 million vials to administer a vaccine. We don't have the vaccine yet, but if we do, we certainly know how to give it to people. Like, we're everyone getting ready so that when it becomes available, you can push go and you hit the ground running. So that, that gave me a lot of confidence uh, that people are really – there, this is not going to be haphazard. The other interesting thing is the uh, company that's helping develop this says they can make 2 billion doses of this. And, and in all fairness, it's not going to be, I don't think we're going to, in a setting where there's going to be just one vaccine. I think out of the mm. 140 or so under development, we can expect that maybe three, four, five of these might be uh, successful. Most of them are going to fail and there'll likely be several vaccines. And if this one doesn't pan out or if it does pan out, there's also a few others that are not far behind. So it's, it's, it's comforting to know that there's a lot of work in this area. And it's also comforting to know that there's, you know, advanced human trials. One last point on vaccines. I don't think we should expect for this to be like the measles vaccine, where you get the vaccine and you're just not going to get the infection. I think we should be thinking of this as a, does this prevent us from getting the infection? B, does this reduce the chances that yeah. we'll get this infection, meaning you might just decrease your chance by, I don't know, 50%, and see if you do get this infection, you're going to have a much milder course of infection. So I think those are the three things we should be considering with the, with the vaccine. It's not just going to be a be-all, end-all blanket protection. I think that's, that's a great answer with a lot of depth to it. I got about 60 seconds, and I want to ask you how it, it viscerally, emotionally affects you to see the stories from the states in the last week. It looks it looks demoralizing for the healthcare workers because they did and and the people that did everything right. Look at how much we've sacrificed since March and they're not only in a worse spot the you know they're they're not only right back where they are in a way they're in a worse spot because of all that work done behind them that that just looks looks immaterial now. I totally agree it's really upsetting. It's really upsetting to watch and, and the other thing that gets lost sometimes is we look at graphs, we look at numbers, we look at charts, you're seeing record numbers of cases, you know, 9,000 new cases per day in Florida alone and 9,000 new cases in California. Like, the numbers are staggering. But at the end of the day, that's just going to amount to a lot of lives lost. Like, there's just a lot of people that are going to die because of this. And, and for what? Like, for bad policy, for, real, for bad leadership and bad policy. It's, it's so sad. And it's, quite frankly, it's, it's inexcusable. It's just awful. Yeah, that's uh, that sums it up. Hey, doctor, I appreciate the time. I'm glad your uh, run went well. And uh, <laughs> haircuts, hair, the, the the hair salons will be waiting for us when it, when it's safe to go. So no Can't no need wait. to hustle it, right? Fair enough. Have a good one. Thanks very much, Doctor Isaac Bogich, uh, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Two aspects to this Roslyn retirement home story. I'm going to cover the, the we're, we're going to talk to, uh, uh, you know, Marissa Lennox. She's been on before with me. But here's the two aspects. And here, this is from the retirement home's perspective. Roslyn retirement residents are are putting an appeal in for the decision to revoke their operating license. There was an inspection done in late May and the RHRA revoked their license I want to say a week and a half ago. So residents have, you know, there, there was a process to this. Residents haven't been allowed to come back since then, but the owners of Roslyn want to find out uh, and want it out there in the public what they did to try and safeguard uh, their residents, to try and stem what ended up being obviously a, a, an outbreak. And the city of Hamilton revoked the home's business license as well. So they say that this was done unfairly. But second side of the story 
the RHRA that I just referenced, uh, the Retirement Homes Regulatory Authority, says um, there was some obstruction of the investigation involved. And there were mistruths told about medical appointments. And there was, you know, the, the concept is, is that they did an inspection May 31st. They revoked the license on June 15th. There's the date. And the inspector cites a failure to comply with regulations around uh, pests, you know, to get graphic. Bed bugs were an issue. Mice were an issue. Um, how they stored uh, drugs and pharmaceuticals was an issue. So there was an awful lot there. And they say the licensee site manager tried to obstruct the inspection by, here's the quote, directing staff to show the inspector only fully completed resident documentation. And if the inspector asked to see documentation for a resident that was incomplete, to tell the inspector that they didn't have that particular record and it was off-site. Why it would be off-site, your guess is as good as mine, but that's in the report, and that's, uh, for lack of a better term, the accusation. I want to bring in the chief policy officer of the Canadian Association of Retired People. She was on the show a couple weeks ago talking about this very issue, Marissa Lennox. Marissa, welcome back to the show. I appreciate the time today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Well, what's your... Uh, you know, there's an emotional reaction and a practical yeah. reaction for you, I'm sure, when you hear some of what's laid out in the RHRA report. Let, let, give me whichever one you want uh, out of that, if yeah. you like. Well, I mean, from an emotional perspective, I don't think Canadians are programmed to believe that anything could be this bad. And yet I'm almost becoming, and I hope that Canadians aren't becoming desensitized to it, because we hear these stories way too often. And I cannot believe that I'm reading it again. I mean, this report is truly damning. Not only were residents' lives at risk by the very conditions in the home, but then the home operators went as far as to deliberately attempt to obstruct the very investigation looking into resident safety in this home. I mean, you mentioned it, instructing staff to show only semi-completed documentation, to lie about records being taken off-site. This is terrible. You know, this family, by the way, owns seven other Mm -hmm. retirement homes, the operator of this. They own seven other retirement homes. If they're lying here, what else have they lied about is my question. Well, what's yeah, that's a struggle to think. The conditions in one are, are, you know, are so decrepit and so, you know, almost offensive to, to our sensibilities that the other six are in perfect condition. That's that's going to be a leap of faith that a lot of people won't take. Well, precisely. And I have no doubt that the RHRA has probably started their investigations into those homes. If they haven't, that they should. But I, you know, and, and, and that's just it, right? Is If the home operator is cutting corners in this home, then you know they're cutting corners in other homes because that's ultimately what this is about. They were aware that of the pest problems. They were aware of the fuzzy dust and the mold. Why was there no attempt to get rid of it immediately in order to protect the lives of the residents in this home? You look at you know where their priorities here, and it and it feels like their priorities are their bottom line, not their residents. I understand the concept of uh, it's going to be a very difficult um, place to go to try and figure out whether, um, you know, private re- private LTCs and, and private retirement uh, homes or communities even should be the norm going forward or whether there should be some sort of, of government or public interaction. But what, what strikes me, Marissa, that the concern is this, if the standards are so, like the standards aren't that of, of an independent 
uh, two-star motel. They're not the standards of an independent, um, you know, private school that isn't government-funded that you'd send your kids to. And of all the scenarios where, you know, for our, our elderly and our, our, our older retired folks, um, the, the, it just is so patently obvious that they deserve much, 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 much better, and we've got to find a way to get them much, 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 much better. Well, it's not just standards of care being provided in these homes. I mean, if you have to even look at the standards to qualify as a licensee under the Retirement Homes Act. It's not very onerous. I mean, a home needs to be primarily occupied by residents that are 65 and older. It has to have at least six occupants that are unrelated to the home operator. It has to provide at least two care services, um, whether that's administering drugs or assistance bathing, but not much else. Um, and maybe we need to do a better job of scrutinizing who is actually able to operate a facility. But, you know, the same goes for standards of care provided in retirement homes or, or long-term care homes. And, of course, they're subject to two different, very, very different acts in Ontario. But I also agree that standards need to be dramatically raised right across the board from staffing standards to to what is being provided to residents in these facilities. And we need to get back to the belief that and to to recognize that, again, these are not simply just institutions where you warehouse elderly people. These are their homes and they need to be treated as such. With respect to Roslyn, remember, this isn't a long-term care home. This is a very expensive private retirement home, which you know. And, you know, people often think that because people are spending top dollar to live in these facilities, therefore they're somehow, you know, will be treated better. But this is a very clear example um, of 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 where someone can take advantage and, and can and can neglect and and abuse their residents. Marissa Lennox is our guest, chief policy officer for the Canadian Association of Retired People. Do you look at at this scenario and say? This look, it's clearly a failure uh, at the provincial level, but I I do also I would look and and not empathize, but understand that the uh, provincial government had many provincial governments before. You can go right back to the mid 90s. And I had a personal experience with my grandmother with it where the Harris government chopped and chopped. It it changed almost overnight uh, the coverage and and the uh, the safety and the standards that were there. But there were years of liberal governments in this province that didn't fix the problem and and didn't isolate the issue and say, we can do better for these people. I do not put the blame um, on the current government alone. Mm -hmm. I think all governments are responsible for this. Um, And it is just so unfortunate that it's taken a pandemic for us to finally have this conversation about how we care for older adults. Uh, whether or not that's in a retirement home or whether that's in their own domicile. And, uh, you know, I think I think moving forward, we're seeing our population is aging. One of the greatest things of the last, you know, century is uh, is longevity. But we need to have an honest conversation about how we're actually going to care for an aging population. Before you go, do you think we're a couple years away, at least from a provincial election, we might be three to three and a half to four years away from another federal election. But I'm sure you uh, and, and many others now who might not have said this last fall or a couple springs ago when when we voted in Ontario, 
you, you're going to have to have leaders talk about this. You're going to have have to have prospective MPs and MPPs talk about this, and we haven't. Yeah. It, it hasn't been a major campaign issue for a long, long time. And like you said, post-pandemic, it, it's got to come to the forefront. Like We can't just forget that this happened over the four months that we're talking about. We cannot revert to the status quo, that is for sure. One thing I'm encouraged by is the rhetoric that's come from the federal government on this. I mean, we think about long-term care, um, and even retirement homes traditionally as, as provincial jurisdiction, and indeed it is, um, because it isn't covered under the Canada Health Act, and the federal government don't, do not provide uh, a transfer of funds to it. But we are hearing now conversations about the federal government coming to the table, about the potential for shared funding between the feds and the provinces. And that is one means of establishing national standards right across the board for how we care for people in these facilities. And I think that that is the right direction. I, I would, I think, you know, the fear, of course, is that as soon as this drops off the radar, and we're already seeing it start to, uh, as the, as, as the news cycle moves on and as the provinces start to reopen, um, there's a fear that, you know, we've almost lost that policy window, if you will. Um, but I can tell you that advocates like myself and, and others in this space are doing everything we can to keep it at the forefront because you just you can't ignore it any longer. Cannot. No. Uh, appreciate the time today, Marissa. Thanks. Stay well. Take care. Bye. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer for the Canadian Association of Retired People. Just to just to give you that sense of reminder, proportionately, and you might have seen it last week. Uh, and again, you know, it bounces off your brain and sometimes you move on to something else. And we shouldn't necessarily but the studies in Canada, the proportion of coronavirus deaths in Canada in nursing homes blow all these other developed countries away. Um, LTC residents make up 81% of Canada's COVID-19 deaths. Like if I asked you, or even if you asked me yesterday, I'd said, I don't know, was it about two thirds? Maybe 70%. And that sounds terrible. It's 81%. Uh, the other countries studied an average of 42%. Of course, they've had outbreaks. Of course, they've had. This is where we we started to find it, it, it on the North American continent was retirement homes and LTCs in Seattle, in the Seattle, Washington area. And we worried for all the BC residents, never thinking it would come to our backyard, well, our front yard, basically, and ravage us. But it did. And it's something that we've got to. Again, move on from, but learn all the lessons and move forward. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Greg Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.